Thank you very much, Gillian. What a delight to be back in the Art Gallery of Ontario, especially in the context of this splendid show. Just to walk through the exhibition of uh, Catherine the Great is to, in fact, see not just a distillation of, of uh, Russian culture, but actually, in many ways, a distillation of the culture of Europe. Because what I'd like to talk about this evening is how, in fact, Catherine became, in many ways, a focus of the 18th century Enlightenment, how she took ideas that developed in many ways in different contexts and, to a degree, made them her own. I'm also going to suggest that the degree of commitment of Catherine to some of these ideas might not be as profound as she perhaps had thought or perhaps would have liked, certainly not the degree which some of her interlocutors and correspondents would have liked, and also that she, like all rulers at any time, were driven by forces over which she had really minimal control, forces that, in fact, changed the nature of European civilization in a profound way. Not only the Enlightenment, which is the subject of tonight's talk, but also the French Revolution, something which to some extent she should have seen coming but didn't, and something that she personally abhorred. We're going to see that there is in fact a very complex image of Catherine's association with the Enlightenment. It wasn't a simple relationship of patron and client, regardless of her close association with the luminaries of the, of the Enlightenment, men like uh, Voltaire and Diderot and, uh, uh, and, uh, and others. But rather, we'll see a character who was fascinated by ideals, had an extraordinarily restless mind, had a great imagination, had a love of beauty, had uh, a world of the imagination. One thing I'm not going to talk about, and I hope that this doesn't disappoint anyone in the audience, is the uh, personal life of Catherine. It's something that gets altogether too much attention, really detracts from her contributions in other ways, and really, I think, moves her away from the true image of the woman that she really was. What she did in her spare time, as I continually tell my students, is really her own business. <laughs> what she did on the public stage and how she contributed to the collective unconscious of Europe is something that we need to explore, and that's what I'd like to do tonight. Catherine's a complex figure in many ways. As we look at the state portrait, uh, this Danish state portrait, we see not only the standard iconography of monarchy, but we also see, in fact, a woman who is uh, looking uh, aside in a mirror that's reflecting that image. It's then a double image. It's the image of the real Catherine, the woman, the uh, empress, and also it's a reflected image of someone who had an image of herself, an image that to some extent is reproduced through a glass darkly. And this is the Catherine that I'd like to explore, that double image, her dual relationship with the Enlightenment, a very complex uh, relationship uh, that I will try to explain in ways not just to follow her very, very deep commitment to a set of friendships and a set of ideas, but also, on another level, her great concern about some of these ideas and the fact that she followed few, if any of them, really to their logical conclusion. This image, then, is the image that we carry of Catherine, a woman in her youth who was beautiful and a woman who had the imagination of Europe at her fingertips, a woman who became a projection of other people's imaginations, a restless personality, while at the same time one who was grounded in the rule of one of the largest empires on the face of the earth, a woman, then, of great complexity, as was her relationship with the time in which she lived. Just to indicate how she captured the, uh, the imagination and creativity of others, Early in her reign, she came to the throne in, in, in 1762 as a consequence of the uh, overthrow of her husband. She began immediately to become interested in ideas that 
had really started to form her earlier. During the period of her youth, she read heavily, very, very deeply in European ideas, and she was influenced by them to a great degree, to be sure. In a very famous letter that she directed to Voltaire, in fact, the first letter she wrote to him in 1763, she said that by chance one of, her, one of his books fell into her hands, and once that happened, she read everything she could by this great man and could read nothing else unless it met the same standard of engagement, intelligence, and content. The result was then she didn't read a great deal more than, that, uh, than the work of Voltaire, uh, at least so Voltaire hoped. The truth is she read many other things, and ideas, in fact, with which Voltaire either agreed very heavily or ideas which actually subverted not only Voltaire's view of the universe, but to some extent, Catherine's herself. Voltaire replied in a number of ways. He was a correspondent of, uh, of Catherine for uh, more than 15 years, in fact, until the time of his death. I'm just going to read a translation of his uh, dedication to her of La Philosophie de l'Histoire, The Philosophy of History, which was printed in 1765. To the great and august majesty, the Princess Catherine II, Empress of all the Russias, protector of all of the arts and sciences, worthy by her spirit and soul to judge the ancient nations and she herself worthy to rule her own. She was then apostrophized by Voltaire, uh, a man given to hyperbole, if you've read anything that he had written, um, as a kind of special, special person, as uh, an unusual figure, a philosopher king, almost in the platonic sense. She was then a princess who not only ruled, but a princess who thought and a princess who taught. By her example, she had to be a teacher. She was, after all, a great empress. And it's how she used this that we really need to discuss and we, we need to see and try and get some concept of exactly what was going on in that very, very um, uh, deep and profound mind that she possessed. Here is the image that you have seen in the, in the exhibition, an image of Catherine taken, in fact, from ancient models. An, Im an image of Catherine as, as Minerva, a carved gem, very much like uh, those carved gems that depict the Emperor Augustus and many other figures, including early Christian saints. She is a figure, then, that brings forth not only memories of antiquity and the wisdom and the profundity of ancient culture, but also the contemporary world of a real woman, then alive someone who can be seen and who can be spoken to and who can be understood as a reflection of her age, as a, spokes, as a spokeswoman uh, for a culture. She, of course, did have those other pursuits, which I will not discuss. She had lovers, uh, as the one depicted here, uh, young men, intelligent men, but men who essentially were uh, those who uh, engaged her mind in other ways. Many of them, in fact, were her intellectual interlocutors. Many of them were the uh, result of lengthy evening conversations. What else they did is irrelevant. The fact that they did, in fact, discuss the problems of the nation, the fact that they did discuss military campaigns, many of which were highly successful, some of which became kings of other nations, like Stanisław Poniatowski, who became king of Poland, and others, like Potemkin, who became, in fact, not only a, a great minister, but, in fact, um, the closest thing that Catherine really had, in some ways, to a soulmate. There is the Catherine that we also see in the exhibition, the Catherine of the, uh, of the world of the light mind, the world of entertainment, the world of, of delight. One of the things about this woman that you can't escape is the fact that she had this multifarious, layered personality. 
She enjoyed pleasure in all of its forms. She had that restless mind that needed to be engaged. And it needed to be engaged not just by the high seriousness of Enlightenment thought, just not by correspondence with Voltaire and Diderot and others, but rather engaged in whatever mood she happened to strike at the time and whatever requirement the court culture in which she lived demanded. And as you see the requirements for admission into her company, you realize that this is a woman not only the ruler of all the Russias, not only the uh, northern star as she was described by Voltaire, but also someone who is clearly a delightful and charming companion. It's always something, especially those in my profession, uh, that we have to keep in mind, that if learning is not worn lightly, then in fact it very seldom is worn often. You really do need to have a tone that is light and a tone that can reach broadly beyond the immediate needs of deep and serious correspondence into a world of charm and, uh, and pleasure. And Catherine had that too. One of the great reasons she remains so attractive to us to this day is the fact that she was a person not terribly unlike us in as much as she had moods and she had uh, enthusiasms. Uh, she was restless, she was intelligent. She did some very silly things and she did some very profound things. She changed her mind as often almost as she changed her uh, intellectual attitudes. She also had a tendency not to follow through on her very, very high ideals and in some instances, she in fact uh, repudiated them, driven by forces that she herself did not altogether approve. Catherine then was a person that we need to understand. And I think in some ways, this wonderful list of the requirements of entering into her evening's uh, uh, entertainment is something that gives a sense that she was in fact that complex person and one whose company we would enjoy. She moved into the Winter Palace in 1762. The great edifice of the building that now houses the great collection that she put together during her reign uh, still dominates the uh, skyline of the, uh, of the city of St. Petersburg and still houses that wonderful collection of art that is reproduced in miniature in this exhibition. It's a building that not only is a royal palace and a place to display the wonderful things that Catherine collected, but also, like all palaces, and I think particularly this palace, it was a theater of majesty. You cannot be a ruling mo monarch, especially in the 18th century, without having a very highly developed sense of theater. One can't help but think of Bolingbroke's famous comment on Louis XIV, that if he was not the greatest king, then he was the greatest actor of majesty that ever stood upon a stage. And much the same is true of Catherine. Catherine was a great actor of majesty. And despite that wonderful role she was able to play, and the fact that she also was a playwright in her, in her, own, uh, uh, in her own right, she also, in fact, was able to mitigate that necessary uh, uh, august authority uh, that was apostrophized by Voltaire by that charm that I've just mentioned. So in Catherine's life, there was a small degree of tragedy, but not really a lot. It was mostly then a, a, a drama of high seriousness that was punctuated often by comedy. It was then not unlike the lives we'd all like to lead. She put in place a number of things in order to act out this theatrical view of her own self. The great theater of Kwarangi, where some of her own performances took place, where the greatest of the uh, uh, playwrights and comedians and the uh, uh, composers of opera and the composers of music would perform all for an empress who had great love of these things and with great understanding of them. 
Catherine was, in fact, not just someone who felt she had to be there, which is the sort of impression one gets of most ruling monarchs, that they go to theater, they go to opera, they go to uh, art exhibitions because it's required of them. Catherine very much always gave the impression that she wanted to be there, that she was the chief critic. And in her exquisite and polished French, she said exactly what she thought, and occasionally the words were scurrilous. As those of you who have seen Russian Ark, that marvelous uh, episode where Catherine uh, saw the, the Italian performance and then realized that, that the demands of nature are uh, enough to put an end to any theatrical performance. Here in the theater, then, we see that very focus of what I'd like to talk about in terms of Catherine's theater of life. Catherine was the creation of herself in many ways. She had a number of others who helped dress her, who helped promote her. She was like the rock star with a number of roadies. She was like the great performer who had the, 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 the flax, the pub publicists, the, uh, uh, the paid um, impresarios who would always uh, praise her so that her audience would grow larger and larger. But ultimately underneath this, regardless how many paid impresarios you have or how many critics you have in your employ, ultimately there has to be some substance to the performer herself. And Catherine indeed had substance, but at the same time, she also in many ways engineered the extension of that substance in directions that she very carefully created. Catherine was in many ways a created and constructed personality, and it was done so very, very consciously. I think she knew exactly what she was doing. She knew precisely the, the dialogue she wanted to enter into with uh, the great, image, the great uh, leaders of the Enlightenment and those leaders of not only society, but also the Republic of Letters that she so greatly cultivated. We think of Catherine also, as we walk through this exhibition, as the hardworking monarch, which in fact she was. Most people with restless personalities have short attention spans. I know I speak for myself. And Catherine seems to have had exactly the same problem. She was a woman who has been described by the great historian of the Enlightenment, Peter Gay, as one who had all of the shallow enthusiasms of the Enlightenment. In many ways, I think that he's being unfair. I think her enthusiasms were not altogether that shallow, but I think they were conflicted. When we see the desk, that exquisite piece of furniture created by Röntgen for, uh, uh, for Catherine, we realize that she also had an image of herself as a hardworking monarch, toiling away for the good of her people. And not only the people of Russia, but I think to some extent for the people of Europe. Her image of herself was one of the enlightened despots, someone who was driven to despotism because of the needs of her backward nation, but at the same time enlightened, and she thought that one mitigated the other. To be a despot was something that was required by history and by the demands of her nation. To be enlightened was something that she chose. But nevertheless, I think as we shall see again, there was a degree of, of, of complexity here that was of her own creation. She was a despot, but she admitted it freely, and others noted it as well, including some of her closest friends like Diderot. But at the same time, the element of her enlightenment was not as simple as she herself would like to have projected. It was an issue of enlightened despotism that did change over time, as indeed all constructive personalities change over time. We are all products of our immediate moment. We are all actors in what is more like guerrilla theater than a carefully constructed 18th century comedy. We don't speak regular Alexandrines, we make up blank verse. And to some extent, even a 
personality like the Empress of all the Russias, who was toasted in, and, and praised by the greatest minds of her age, was also one who had the same element of the need to improvise. Catherine's improvisation and the projection of herself as the almost the embodiment of enlightened pat uh, patronage can be seen in so many of the images in the exhibition. This is a recurring theme, the idea of Catherine as patron. She was, after all, one of the great art collectors of history. She was one of the great individuals who recognized genius. She was one who was sufficiently interested with, uh, enough in genius to actually correspond with it. It's one thing to be interested in books. It's something else to actually speak to the author. It's one thing to have a fascination with ideas. It's something else to actually try and embody them and in, and in some instances actually incorporate them into law. She was all of these things and the iconography of Catherine then reflects this. To some extent the iconography is a very, very powerful memory of the ancient images that I've already referred to. Images of gods and emperors, kings and princes, and those from antiquity and those from history who have made contributions to the arts and culture. The idea that the mind of man is infinitely expandable and in fact in the idea of John Locke virtually perfectible provided reason can be applied. And here in the Flaxman uh, 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 um, image of Catherine rewarding arts and sciences, she is doing just that. And of course she is that figure that she liked to compare herself to as often as possible, uh, Minerva. She is the Pallas Athene then of her age. She is the Minerva of the North. She is the Russian who embodied a set of ideas that she was going to bring to a barbarous northern nation. She was going to make Russia part of Europe. This, in fact, I have no doubt whatsoever, was part of her policy. One of the reasons she was as interested as she was in doing what we see her doing in this Flaxman image is to make Russia part of the mainstream of European culture. It was only really a very few years since Peter the Great had opened that window on the West and Catherine felt that it was her duty as a citizen of that West to take her adopted nation and bring it more firmly into the collective unconscious of the European imagination. It was done not only for the benefit of Russia, but I sincerely believe this was part of the, of the intent. She really did feel that Russia would benefit greatly from being part of the European movement, but also it was to benefit her. It's one thing to be born an empress. It's another to find yourself created an empress. It's something, yet again, to be an empress that can actually create a new culture and civilization and change the course of history. Catherine was not in any way a shy personality. She was not a retiring violet that would wither under the breath of, of, uh, of wind uh, or in the bright light of the sun. She liked to shine and she liked to make sure that everyone was aware of all of her talents. And in so doing, she was not only then creating and constructing herself as the Minerva of her age, but she also was doing the same for Russia. Because any nation that had as its head someone like Catherine must itself be a reflection of a new world, of a new dispensation, of new hope and the force of history directed towards the good. The relationship with Voltaire is an interesting one. It's the Enlightenment connection that's most often uh, alluded to. They were correspondents for a number of years, for 15 years. They never actually uh, spent time together. 
Voltaire, despite the years that he spent at Potsdam with Frederick the Great, always refused the invitations of Catherine to come to St. Petersburg. Voltaire was to some extent a polished courtier. It's something that we forget that he actually was a gentleman to the bedchamber of Louis XV, and he got that job by uh, her, his connection with Madame de Pompadour, who knew that room extraordinarily well. He also was made royal historiographer, which forced him to do things like write a book that actually he had no trouble writing, and that is the age of Louis XIV, in which this person who so strongly and powerfully believed in reason, who believed in the freedom of religion, or at least the freedom of the mind to reject religion, who called the Catholic Church a great scourge and continually called upon the people of Europe to écraser l'enfant, to crush the infamy of the church, wrote a history in great praise of the man who had revoked the Edict of Nantes. Voltaire then was as complicated a person as Catherine, and that's why I think they remained close correspondents and indeed close friends, at least in writing, for uh, all those years. Unlike his relationship with, uh, with, with Frederick the Great, which soured, they had a terrible falling out, and in fact, Voltaire was in great danger for a short period of time, was actually arrested. Um, his relation with Catherine remained almost uh, always sunny. I think in part it's because they never did meet, and it's also because Voltaire had the ability when necessary to be a courtier. Voltaire's relation with Catherine then, I think, was as constructed and complex as Catherine's with, uh, relation with him. Catherine needed him to some extent because he was the greatest mind in Europe, certainly the most famous European. And he provided a degree of intellectual and cultural and social recognition and also to some extent a, a, a degree of, of, of fame and celebration that she could get in no other way. Her correspondence with Voltaire then was something that she used in order to project her image of herself and the image that she would like to create, and Voltaire was only too happy, really, to, coll to, uh, to collaborate. Uh, the image I think that perhaps must be most effective is when uh, Prime Minister Paul Martin stood with Bono. Here we have a politician who had particular needs at a particular time, and there was a rock star who needed credibility, and the two of them actually worked extraordinarily well together, at least on that occasion. And I think that the relation between Voltaire and Catherine, not unlike Bono and Paul Martin, it was an opportunity for two different perspectives, one the solid suit and the other the cutting edge, uh, a, a, a person of contemporary culture, to come together in a common cause. After all, Catherine, as empress of all the Russias, autocrat of all the Russias, was in fact the ultimate suit. And Voltaire, that man who had spent 11 months in the Bastille, who uh, said terrible things about everybody when he had an opportunity, he was the greatest wit of his time, who attacked the Roman Church and ultimately forced the Roman Church to recognize its own scandalous behavior in many ways, as well as making great fun of Louis XV when he could get away with it, was in fact the bono of his time. So we see in this marvelous image of Voltaire that great, biting, satiric wit that person who had the ability to engage in, 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 uh, in satire. And his relationship with Catherine, I will not suggest for a moment, was satirical, because I don't think it was. Because in some ways, that northern star, as he called her, blinded him, the way Louis XIV blinded Voltaire in his uh, Siecle de Louis XIV, blinded him because Voltaire, I think, really believed that Catherine 
had nothing to do with the murder of her husband, that she was completely innocent. She just happened to be there. <laughs> that the partition of Poland was done in order to save the Poles from the Catholic Church. I think he truly believed this. It was in many ways nonsense, but he chose to believe it because it suited his own image of her and his relationship with her. So already, I think, the relationship between Catherine and the Enlightenment is already becoming somewhat murky. It's not clear. It's not one of pure patronage. It's one of mutual need, and the fact the Enlightenment needed Catherine almost as much as Catherine needed the Enlightenment. I'm going to talk later about the latter years of Catherine's life and how this changed. Here is the famous bust of Voltaire in a toga by Oudon, and it brings forth other sorts of images. The earlier image of Voltaire is the wit of, of Ferny, the philosopher of, of, uh, of his age, uh, the satirical writer who could poke fun at everything, who could in fact teach a lesson and make you laugh. But here is the other Voltaire, the Voltaire without his wig, the Voltaire in the uh, costume of, of, of the Roman sobriety. This is the Voltaire of the late Republic, and this is the Voltaire of a world that was ultimately going to challenge Catherine. Catherine didn't look too deeply in some instances at some of the ideas that she was accepting, at least by proxy. And even Voltaire let forth forces that he himself would not necessarily believe or accept or certainly condone. We see in this world of Voltaire this image. This is the image of Cato the censor. This is the image of the serious Roman, the Romans that appear in Plutarch, of which Voltaire was very proud to have read. One of the reasons Diderot wrote to Catherine that you love, love Voltaire so much is he is the product of ancient learning. He is well read. He has read Thucydides and Plutarch. He has read Livy. He has read the great philosophers and the historians of antiquity, and he has taken these and applied them to the needs of our own age. And indeed he had and others were to run with some ideas that Voltaire had just put out. Catherine was one of them, and Catherine, I think, like others, didn't see precisely where all of these ideas were going. Because in this Voltaire, the Voltaire of high seriousness, there were other ideas that were percolating. Catherine's interest in Voltaire and the image that she had of him was an image that was constructed by correspondence. As we all know, people we know by letters, uh, are people that we know in a way that they choose to tell us. Catherine herself was a famous memorialist. She wrote memoirs, and uh, we also know that memoirs and uh, autobiographies are a genre of fiction because they always present the image that we want others to see. And in those lovely genre pictures by Hubert, those lovely, delightful pictures of the daily routines of Voltaire, we can see almost icons, and I don't want to carry this far because, of course, it doesn't really make any sense, but as a professor, I'm allowed to say things that don't make a lot of sense but stimulate the student's mind. In some ways, these are icons, but not in the Russian sense. They're icons of reason and pure humanity. Voltaire is often called the philosopher of humanity because if you look at uh, a book like Candide, you see the essential humanity that we all share being taken and turned into uh, the picaresque story of an improbable hero. And we can also see in these stories the common humanity of, uh, of a genius growing old. These images, which are so charming and so delightful, in particular this, which is one of my favorite images in the entire show. It's not great art, but it's again one of those splendid moments. It's a snapshot in the world of a great man living a common life. 
Catherine never really led a common life. Catherine couldn't. As empress of all the Russias, a common life was forbidden to her. But Voltaire could. Being a philosopher allows for a little bit of common touch. And Voltaire, in fact, is shown here exercising the humanity that he praised in others. When the Enlightenment has been called the party of humanity, I think it's a very apt description. And Voltaire in these pictures become, in many ways, almost the, the film of humanity, or at least those snapshots that allow us to recognize the common moments, whether we're geniuses or whether we're not. And that's why these great delightful scenes must reflect the way, in some ways, Catherine could see Voltaire uh, 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 between the lines of his correspondence. Voltaire was a great flatterer, and he flattered Catherine, and Catherine liked to be flattered. But at the same time, he also said things that you couldn't help but uh, realize reflected his novels and reflected the short stories and reflected the other things that you couldn't help but occasionally see. We always have to remember that there are those two Voltaires. There's the Voltaire of Candide, and there's the Voltaire of the age of Louis XIV, and, I hate to say, the Voltaire of the Oread, that terrible, awful, uh, execrable epic poem that he wrote in the life of Henry IV. And Voltaire, who had an ego larger than almost anyone's with the possible exception of Catherine, could in fact say that when he finished the Henriade, he finally found his métier, that, like uh, uh, Virgil, he was an epic poet. And of course, I challenge anyone in this room to actually admit to having read the Henriade. The images of Voltaire then reappear in the exhibition because Voltaire becomes a kind of poster boy for what it is that Catherine would have liked to have done and the kind of correspondence that she liked. As I suggested before, Catherine was more than just the deep uh, a reservoir of, of, of high seriousness and drama, a deep reservoir of ideas and thought. She was also a charming and delightful conversationalist. She was the writer of comedies. She was a person of great pleasure. And I think she saw in Voltaire that same mixture. So these icons of Voltaire, in fact, represent in some ways two parallel personalities. Someone who could, in fact, laugh and then speak seriously within the same conversation. Both of them would have been perfect dinner party companions. If you had to put together, in fact, the perfect table of 12, I really suggest to have Catherine on one side and Voltaire on the other would get you very far with any A-list you could ever create. Her relationship with Diderot was different. Diderot was a very different kind of person from Voltaire. Voltaire, despite his grand bourgeois origins, always saw himself as an aristocrat, at least of the mind. He added the aristocratic particule de to his name, and he had very strong courtly connections with his position at the court of Louis XV and his very close friendship and association at Potsdam with Frederick the Great. Diderot was different. Diderot was bourgeois and very self-consciously bourgeois. He actually was very content with his middle-class origins and he didn't much like courts. But ironically, it was Diderot that went to Russia in 1773-74 to spend time with his patron, Catherine. Diderot had put so much of his time and indeed a good deal of his, uh, of, of, of his own money, either by foregoing other commissions or by needing to make sure that the printers would be paid, especially when the printing was clandestine, uh, to make sure the encyclopedia would come out, that he found himself in difficult circumstances. And here Catherine the patron and Catherine the friend intervened. And indeed, in one of the most civilized and humane acts of patronage that I know of, Catherine made sure that Diderot would not only have a job, but do so in a way that wouldn't make him feel like a servant. 
She purchased his library, but she didn't take it. She said, you're a scholar and you're doing encyclopedia, you need your library. I'll take it only when you no longer need it, in effect, when you've died. And that's exactly what she did. She purchased it, but allowed Diderot to have use of it. She gave him a position uh, which provided a, uh, a, a, a sinecure. Again, money from a patron, but it also gave him a job. I think this relationship between Catherine and Diderot was an extremely civilized one, and it also allowed Diderot to do things that Voltaire could not. Voltaire was, in some ways, a consummate courtier, despite his 11 months in the Bastille for insulting the Regent Orléans and his terrible quarrel with, uh, with Frederick the Great. He was a consummate courtier because he was a professional wit and knew what to say when. Voltaire could always come up with le mot juste. Diderot was a much more serious person, despite the fact that he, too, had a cultivated sense of humor. And he often told Catherine what he thought, even though he knew perfectly well that Catherine would not only disagree, but could have, under other circumstances, have been insulted. One of the most famous exchanges had to do with the idea of reform and, the, and enlightened despotism altogether. Diderot wrote that to have a, a, a reform without freedom is a kind of oxymoron that it was, in fact, just paternalism. And enlightened despotism is a kind of paternalistic despotism. He wrote to her that one of the great dangers of rulers like you, Catherine, is that you are too good because you are a despot. He used the historical example that if England had seen three Queen Elizabeths in succession, the, na the nation now would be living in slavery because people lose their sense of their own freedom when they are granted freedom through a despotism that seems to be giving them enlightened rule. He truly believed in the need for freedom of speech. In fact, one of the reasons that Diderot became an editor of the encyclopedia and wrote what he did is his profound belief that the fundamental freedom from which all others would flow would be freedom of speech and freedom of association. And he also knew that in the world of Catherine, these things had to be controlled. He gave Catherine advice, and he gave Catherine advice that in some instances she found charming and delightful, and in others she simply ignored. But nevertheless, he was always, I think, honest with her. This, too, reflects extremely well on both of them. It reflects well on that bourgeois mentality of Diderot, who felt the obligation to tell the truth, even if it could be hurtful, and also on Catherine, who not only accepted this advice, but occasionally even thanked him for it, even though she had no intention whatsoever of acting on it. The discussion continued. The correspondence was rich, and they actually uh, stayed together at some time. The library that she acquired from Diderot became part of the Russian National Library, where it is today. And it's also true that she bought the library of Voltaire after his death from his niece and mistress. It was an extraordinarily unusual family relationship, uh, Madame Denis. Uh, Voltaire's library, for which she paid the enormous sum of 135,000 French pounds, uh, became part of the glory of, uh, of St. Petersburg, as it is to this day. And I couldn't help but show the library uh, um, in, the, um, uh, in the Hermitage. There were other figures who did not appear as strongly or as powerfully in the mind of Catherine. Catherine did have an interest in science, and this is something that's not as often indicated. She made sure that the mathematician Euler returned from Berlin and worked at her court, and she also corresponded with the Comte de Buffon. 
Buffon, whom we see here, not only believed in evolution, in fact, had powerful anecdotal evidence from bits and pieces on his study of birds that he uh, made sure appeared in the encyclopedia, but he also was a profound thinker in his own regard. He was an eccentric man, but uh, he was a scientist, and so that was almost to be expected. <laughs> Buffon and Catherine then indicated that the entire wealth of the uh, Enlightenment mind, not just the love of letters and the elegant turn of phrase that could be found so effectively in the writings of Voltaire uh, would be attractive, but also the things of the mind that had to be reflected in much more serious and, and much more curt language. Catherine then was wide and contained multitudes. She was in fact a deep figure and one who was interested in thought that went beyond uh, charm. One of the figures who, do, who don't appear, one of the individuals with whom we associate the Enlightenment mind uh, most profoundly was someone with whom she shared a, a deep distrust, and that was uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. She, in fact, forbade Emile to be read at court. She felt that Rousseau was in some ways a dangerous thinker, even though in some ways uh, what Diderot was telling her was not unlike what Rousseau was writing in the Contrat Social. The idea of freedom and reform being necessary elements in one, in, 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 in one form in order to drive history was Diderot's advice to her. It was also the advice of, of, of Rousseau. But nevertheless, Rousseau was not the kind of person to ever be a courtier. He was socially maladroit. He was not the master of le mot juste. He, in fact, was the kind of personality that Catherine would have found somewhat tedious, as indeed, I think, would we. If we found him at dinner, we probably would not like his table manners. We would be disgusted by the fact that he gave up all of his illegitimate children by that illiterate washerwoman whom he kept it as a mistress when they were born. We wouldn't have liked the fact that he made enemies of everyone who tried to help him. And we wouldn't particularly like the fact that his genius seemed to be very often turned against uh, uh, himself. But nevertheless, he was a figure that loomed large to the point of producing a a prefiguration of the events that were to come later in the century. These were the events that Catherine rejected, and in many ways her rejection of Rousseau was a prefiguration as well, that she would reject what the ideas of the Enlightenment ultimately led to. I could perhaps say that Catherine's insight into the Enlightenment was more profound than many of the French philosophers who thought they were so clever. Perhaps she saw, in fact, that in Rousseau there were ideas that carried to their logical or illogical extension, depending on your perspective, they would bring forth a world that Catherine could not understand and would have no room for her. So Rousseau does not really appear on that Parnassus that Catherine tries to create. Rather, he always is a minor figure. He is referred to rather than a correspondent, and in their mutual concerns, Diderot writes of the writings of Rousseau in a way that Catherine, I think, could perhaps uh, understand. This image of Catherine, then, is one of the most charming that we see in the exhibition, and iconographically it's complex. It's a wonderful image of an attractive middle-aged woman coming out of that uh, 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 headdress, the, not unlike the, the lozenge, which is the symbolic seal of femininity that goes back to the time of sigillography, 
or even to the time of, of ancient Rome. It could, in fact, be the dress of a, of a, of a vestal virgin or one of the priestesses of one of the female uh, uh, religious cults. She is then a kind of icon in herself here. She is the Minerva of the North, but not in the guise of pure classical iconography, but rather in propria persona, in her own right. Catherine then comes forth from this as a person of deep, deep complexity, and a person who has read those authors we have just met, and on whom she has put judgment. And the judgments that she's made are complex. She collects images of Minerva, and the association between that almost priestess image that we've seen and this is something that she would like to have made. The association was something that she was clearly aware of and one that she wanted to propagate. But whether it was something that really reflected the reality of her reign is something that we have to judge. They're the positive things, and things for which she should be celebrated without question. The free economic society, which she began in 1765, and this tankard that reflects it, was in some ways the very best example of the institutionalization of the ideas of the French physiocrats, the ideas of, of Turgot, and to some extent even those that would become the, 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 the formation of the mind of Adam Smith. She truly believed in the freeing of agriculture, as those physiocrats wrote, the true production of any nation was produced by the production of the land, which would then uh, galvanize all other industries to, uh, uh, to success. She believed in the freeing of industry, and she insisted that there be at least some recognition of these new economic ideas. Where they went, of course, was not so much her concern, because in some ways in Russia, they really didn't go anywhere. She also saw herself as the reformer of the laws. And in this image from the exhibition, one of the most splendid in some ways from uh, the, the iconography of intellectual history, there is Catherine writing her famous nakaz of six, 1768. Catherine desired, Catherine wanted, she said, to reform the laws of Russia. And she began a commission to do exactly that. She read heavily, and she did what I would accuse my students of, plagiarized heavily. She, in fact, took large sections from Beccaria's uh, De Deliti and incorporated them in her nakaz. She took the ideas of Montesquieu, with which she was very comfortable, since Montesquieu's aristocratic view of society was not unlike her own, and she incorporated these. A belief that there would be a whole new world based upon the Enlightenment thought, especially of Beccaria, that Italian philosopher of the law who believed that punishment should be just and that uh, torture and even capital punishment are against human dignity and consequently against the Enlightenment view of man. Catherine's nakaz, of course, also went nowhere. It ended, it suggested, and the historians point to Pugachev's rebellion of 1773 as the reason why it was abandoned, that she became so nervous of the peasants, she became so frightened of where reform might go that she simply let it die. Well, if so, it was to a degree a mistake, because what she had in fact embarked upon was something that may in fact have given her uh, northern uh, 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 empire uh, a glue uh, to hold it together. But nevertheless, she did try. The very fact that she had read Beccaria and incorporated his thought, the fact that she had read Montesquieu and argued elements of Montesquieu in her correspondence with Diderot is something to be credited. How many ruling monarchs have read Beccaria? How many had read Montesquieu? Very few. I doubt that there would in fact be many of her fellow monarchs who even knew who Beccaria was. 
But she did, and she did try to use the ideas. But again, it didn't really reach fruition. Was she perhaps, as Peter Gay suggested, just the result of a number of enthusiasms? The restless 18th century mind, which was driven by the fashion of enthusiasm of ideas. Well, it's for us to tell. Education was the other Enlightenment obsession. And of course, being a friend of Diderot meant that you were a friend of education. Diderot's belief in education was as profound as any of the philosophes. And again, Catherine must be credited with actually having read what they had written. In particular, she had read John Locke. And an essay concerning human understanding written at the end of the 17th century is one of the platforms in which the entire Enlightenment mind and the entire Enlightenment project is built. The idea that we are all blank slates, nothing to do with our birth or our genetic memory, makes us different. It is only our environment and what is written on those slates that will really determine who we become. Catherine then became interested in education, and she actually did here follow through. Catherine wrote Primer, again, very heavily dependent upon John Locke, and she also founded the Smolny Institute for the education of uh, Russian aristocratic girls, and ext extended it, in fact, to the, uh, to the high bourgeois. Catherine's belief in education was, I think, real. And here it, we, we see a departure. The other ideas, whether they're ideas of the reform of the law, the ideas of the reconstruction of an empire based on Enlightenment thought, the ideas of reform through enlightened despotism, all ultimately reached a kind of, of, of wall, uh, a position beyond which they seem not to be able to go. In education, Catherine did go there. Catherine actually completed her desire and actually created institutions that outlasted her. And in the Smolny Institute, she gave uh, an impetus for the education of girls and women that became a model in some ways to Europe. Catherine then was someone who believed that the education of the fellow human was something that could benefit her world and not just those of her court because the admission of those girls of the haute bourgeoisie provided an opportunity for social mobility, something, again, which Catherine might not have necessarily intended, but I think she did. And here we see Catherine's own biography at work. Catherine was largely self-educated. Catherine was who she was as a result of reading. And she believed that the mind of young women could be formed as hers had been formed, provided they had access to good ideas, good thoughts, and the sorts of things that could provide the background and the platform for the creation of an enlightened mind. So here we give Catherine full marks and we credit her for an institution that lasted until the revolution. And again, in one of those great ironies of history, an institution which became the headquarters of Lenin's revolutionary Bolsheviks in 1917. Catherine's other plans were plans for building and plans for the creation of monuments. This, again, in one of the images from the exhibition is the Temple of Minerva, and how appropriate and how good. The idea, then, of building monuments is something that reflects every, every despot's desire, whether it's Ozymandias, King of Kings, or whether it's the great emperors of Rome who wanted to create monuments that would outlast them, monuments more lasting than bronze. Well, she herself wanted to create something that would be a monument to, to some extent, the ideas that she professed, but ultimately, I think, to her. 
Catherine's use of the ideas of the Enlightenment and its iconography and its symbols became, as I suggested, a way of advertising Russia's entry into the mainstream of European culture and her leadership of both Russia and that access into culture. If Russia had become a great ship now sailing into uh, European waters, she was the pilot and she wanted everyone to make absolutely certain that they were aware of it. These monuments then were built. The monument, again, from the exhibition that would be the Temple of Fame. And here we see this perfect classical ideal with the obelisk, the reflection of ancient Rome that was going to then reflect the new Rome or the new world that she was creating in, in, uh, in St. Petersburg. The idea of Russia being the third Rome was something that was very, very old and based upon the connection with the Orthodox Church and all kinds of other images. Catherine's image of St. Petersburg as a new classical model was something that was very much in line with Peter the Great's ambitions, but suited her own neoclassical ideals perfectly. Because as I suggested to begin with, she was in so many ways a reflection of that iconography of majesty that has a direct line to classical antiquity and was resurrected during the period of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment that provided a wonderful, wonderful way of praising monarchs and giving them a clear vocabulary to exercise their authority and their patronage. Here is what it might have become, but this is the outside. It is the inside to some extent that mattered most. In this temple of fame, there would be a monument that would be the, 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 the fame of Catherine the Great. Here is Catherine, and she was, in fact, to be there in that chariot of fame, pulled along so that all would be aware of the gift that she had made to her people and to Europe, and as the patron to the uh, Enlightenment, the party of humanity itself. The idea then is Catherine is an icon, as not just a woman, as not just an empress, but in fact as a symbol is there and very much in Catherine's mind. Catherine's enlightenment mind then was not just the engagement with the ideas, but also the projection of what those ideas might do for her. And there's nothing like having a Voltaire or a Diderot as a publicist. She collected other things that associated her with that world. There was the almost romantic image and vision that we see in this, uh, uh, the Giuseppe Menocchi uh, uh, Caius Sestius pyramid. That set of ruins that again connected the idea of the ancient world with the contemporary, the idea of a new dispensation. The iconography of the uh, incarnation itself is often associated with ruined classical buildings and the new dispensation would then be the next stage in the movement of civilization forward. So it's not an accident these things were collected by people like Catherine and it's not an accident that she wanted ruins of her own. There was no ancient ruin in Russia. The Romans never got there. But there's no reason why she couldn't create them. History, after all, is a conventional fiction, as I continually remind my students, much to their horror, and their question is then, what can I put on the exam? <laughs> the world then of the creation of uh, the ruins of the mind, of a collective unconscious, of shards collected against our ruin, at least in terms of memory, is something as old almost as, uh, uh, as the Renaissance rediscovery of antiquity uh, in the beginning of the 15th century. And here in Catherine's imaginary ruins, she can connect herself again to those moments. Just as she praised Voltaire, and as how Diderot praised Voltaire, and how Rousseau praised himself, as being the product of ancient culture and ancient reading. 
So Catherine can then make a world of Russia based on ancient models that didn't really exist. There's no reason then why you couldn't create them. If you had no ruins to connect you directly with antiquity, well, a few could be found and, if necessary, made. So the image in this marvelous Chardin piece, again, one of my favorite images from the uh, exhibition, this uh, collection of, of, of symbols of, 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 of the world of the mind is very much a kind of pastiche. It's a kind of outward and visible sign of that intellectual grace that Catherine seemed to enjoy. All of the elements of the arts and sciences are here, and Mercury, the ancient god of speech and communication, is there because Catherine, in all of her fields, whether she was writing or whether she was simply being, was a superb communicator. The theater of her life was able to project a certain image, and that image was one with her age, the leader of her age, again, that uh, uh, Semiramis or that Minerva of the North. But then we have to look at what's beneath it. Here, again, this charming sève of Pygmalion Galatea. We see, in fact, the sculptor Pygmalion falling for something that is his own creation, falling in love with something that isn't really quite real and not aware of it. Catherine, in some ways, was Pygmalion. She fell in love with something that didn't really exist, and that was an enlightenment that would suit her, an enlightenment that could be applied to Russia. I'd like to suggest that this image and the others that we connect with Catherine, the idea of this over-the-top image of Catherine as Minerva, this thing that clearly is a, is a pastiche of all kinds of ideas in order to create a particular moment, is something that really reflects the, uh, the conflict that I mentioned at the beginning of my talk. And the other symbol, something that, again, I would like to talk about is not what it is, but what it might symbolize in the context of my lecture, is Catherine's theatrical creation of a non-existent world. Right of Darby, one of my favorite paintings, so a painter, so I'm very glad that, uh, that Catherine has this marvelous image of the forge and that it is here and I can see it up close. If we look at it, it's of course a wonderful piece of painting by Wright of Darby. But I'd also like to suggest that from my purposes at this moment, it's also a symbol. It's Plato's cave. And what Catherine was seeing was, in fact, the shadows on the wall of the Enlightenment rather than the Enlightenment herself. When she looked out and saw the Enlightenment mind, she saw largely what she wanted to and what Voltaire told her what it is that she wanted to hear. When she argued with Diderot and when Diderot told her the truth, she said, ah, yes, Diderot, but of course things are different in Russia, and yes, I take your point, but it's not going to happen here. This is Plato's cave. And she should remember when she looked upon this carved uh, uh, gem that in fact Socrates was forced to take hemlock and that ultimately he who could corrupt the youth of Athens or described himself as a gadfly among the Athenians ultimately had to be put down. Catherine in some ways does not represent Socrates. Catherine represents the force of the patricians of, of Athens that uh, insisted that Socrates die. Because Catherine, in her ideas and her love of the Enlightenment, was in love with ideas in their abstract form. She loved to have her mind engaged. She loved to be part of a world that continually brought a new excitement to uh, the culture in which she was living. It provided her an entree and a vocabulary for discussion of Russia's participation in the Western world. 
It gave her a chance to be seen and to be feted and in particular to be praised by the greatest minds who were then alive. But ultimately, what did she do with the ideas that they provided? What did she think of what it is that they wrote? What she avoided was the other side of the Enlightenment, the side that we see in Rousseau, the side that Rousseau in fact describes saying that I am the product of my youthful reading of Plutarch, the side that we get in the recreation of antiquity based upon the ancient Greek and Roman models that really talk about the need of sacrifice for principles up to the point of death. Here in this absolutely marvelous painting of the Oath of the Horatii by, uh, by uh, uh, Jacques-Louis David, we see at a time when Catherine was still very much alive and collecting, the painting dates from 1784, we see the other enlightenment, the enlightenment that was leading in a direction that wasn't the charm of Voltaire, it wasn't the intellectual sparring with Diderot, it wasn't the aristocratic reform of Montesquieu, and it certainly wasn't the humane world of Beccaria, but it was a world that was leading towards the sacrifice of the individual and a change that would be so profound that there would be no roots left of a plant that had been seen to be dying on the vine. A world that was coming and that resulted in the revolution in France. When revolution broke out in 1789, Catherine was horrified, and in many ways she should have been. She was horrified because the ideas with which she had flirted, the principles with which she had fallen in love, the ideas that she had discussed and in many instances patronized, had led to regicide, had led to a series of events that shook her own throne because it shook the concept of monarchy everywhere on the continent. When she saw events like this, the uh, murder of the Princess de Lamballe, uh, the uh, close friend of Marie Antoinette, and the carrying of her head through the streets, she realized that could be the head of any female, any monarch, anyone who in fact had fallen uh, into the hands of those who had taken revolutionary ideas and put them to their final extension. The ideas of the revolution then were the ideas of the Enlightenment. Catherine was extraordinarily clever and insightful. She was a woman of deep reading and she was very, very aware of European affairs. I think she realized late in life that the ideas that had so engaged her, that the enlightenment that had so charmed her, the personalities that had so entertained her and engaged her, had led to the events of France in 1789 and ultimately to the regicidal acts of 1793-94. Catherine should have realized that the, that the dream of reason does in fact bring forth monsters, but she didn't. This Goya image of that is the image that Catherine to some extent should have had as the memento mori in her flirtation with the Enlightenment. That these ideas have very profound consequences. They are not ideas to be trifled with. She was in some ways a kind of sorcerer's apprentice in as much as she at least paid the sorcerer's apprentice to play with things that he did not understand. The Demons that came out of this dream of reason were the demons that Catherine herself rejected in such anger. The events that she had tried to control became out of control. Her fury was such that she wanted to lead a grand coalition against France, but died before the opportunity arose. She in fact turned on many of the ideas that she had accepted so fondly in her youth. She became in some ways a prisoner of her own past and 
She entered the Winter Palace in the winter of her life, and she spent her time there wondering what had happened, and in many ways in sorrowful anger. Catherine, then, is a complex, very conflicted character. She is a woman of complexity and a woman of insight. She is a woman who created a theater of life only to find that at the end what she thought was comedy turned out as tragedy. Ideas that she thought she could control became ideas that no one could ultimately harness. She ultimately realized that ideas cannot be controlled, something that Rousseau had said and something that Diderot had tried to warn her about. She believed you could have reform with despotism. The revolution proved you could not. Catherine then, in many ways, indicates both the great luster and the tragedy of Enlightenment thought in the 18th century. A series of ideas and a series of principles, a series of beliefs and a series of beautiful images that all glorified the idea of human reason. That smile of reason that seems to be almost perpetually on the face of the young Voltaire. That image of man being able to do anything provided that reason would banish forever the darkness of superstition and ignorance. The belief of John Locke that once you wrote logically and reasonably on that tabula rasa, you would create a world that would bring forth happiness and goodness. Well, Catherine saw, because she lived long enough to actually see it, that this was not the case. The sleep of reason does bring forth demons, and Catherine lived long enough to see the ultimate demon enthroned in the French Revolution. And did she regret her youth? I don't think that Catherine really regretted anything. I think that Catherine was the kind of woman who saw the times change and she had to change with it. And at the end, she was not that young, engaged, restless imagination flirting with the ideas of the Enlightenment. At the end, she was less enlightened and more despotic. At the end, the Russian serf was far worse off at the end of Catherine's reign than at the beginning. It was a world in which ideas have consequences, and Catherine was able to accept some but not all. And in this, she was again, as I suggested, very much like us. We pick and choose to be the actors in our own dramas, and we, like Catherine, must realize that occasionally the plot will get out of hand, and we will end up being asked to do things by the playwright that we might not be able to altogether control. Catherine's world, then, was a world that ultimately came crashing down. But nevertheless, we must give her credit for having been part of it. And in some ways, with her genius and her insight, her ability and her love of life, her incredible insight into, the human, into human nature and recognition of what her power could do, she actually was a driving force of history. She was one of those elements that indicate that the world can change. But she had to realize very, very late in life that difficult lesson that things don't necessarily turn out the way we expect, and the change that results is not necessarily the one that we would choose. Thank you very much.